virgins or foolish virgins. <laughs> you can decide. Um, it is very lovely um, to be here tonight. Um, my memory, my dad used to work for the Ribble buses. Hands up if you remember the Ribble. Quality. And that meant that every other Sunday he had a day off. And I think to get me out of me from under my mother's feet, he used to take me to town. And there were two things that we would do. We would come to this cathedral and we'd look at this amazing space from up in that gallery. And then we'd go to Lime Street and he'd have a pint of beer. Now, I hope this is all going to work. If it doesn't, it'll be my fault, as something happened behind me. Yes. First thing to confess, I thought it was lopsided, not lopsided. I'm very pleased I got that right. Um, you will be aware that there is a lot of talk about resilience. If you've not come across it, I don't know where you've been. There we go. Um, I just kind of picked up all these situations where the R word, resilience, gets used. So you can have a resilient city, and I suspect those who are traveling to Liverpool on the train are needing to find a certain resilience as they make their way to somewhere, um, but not Lime Street. You might be part of the Northern Powerhouse, resilient there. You might be in the military, and in fact, it's the US Army, which has perhaps pioneered more than anybody else, all talk of resilience. Or you might be involved in your local school, and no doubt one of the papers which the head teacher is having to assimilate is all about children and resilience and I'm just going to walk over here because when I go around this little one here I've more or less given you a lecture resilient people see challenges they commit to goals they focus on what they can control they don't blame themselves they are empathetic and they think positively. Right, should we go and watch the football now? <laughs> anyway, here's a definition for you. Resilience is the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress, such as family and relationship problems, serious health problems, or workplace and financial stresses. It means bouncing back from difficult experiences. So the Japanese proverb, fall down seven times, get up eight, could be the summary of resilience. But I smell a rat. All this talk of resilience, I think, might mask a degree of unfairness. But I don't want to dismiss resilience. 
it is an important dynamic, an important feature of thriving people and thriving neighborhoods. But gosh, we do need this caution. Resilience, it's an aerosol word sprayed on to give a sweet aroma and a hint of mist. So I want to commend to you a moral imperative that we retain a critical, critical perspective when we are party to promoting and encouraging resilience. And I've used the jargon resilience discourse. A discourse is something that frames the way in which we think about things. So all this talk of resilience is starting to shape the way we see the world and the way we see people. And I bet at some point during this World Cup competition, some commentator, I'll use the R word, about the resilience of the team um, when they've had a setback. It's the word everybody's using. But what resilience discourse does is it puts the responsibility with the individual. And it can too easily mask the enormity of unfairness, and let note this expression well, relentless everyday injustices. Because resilience, when it's part of our social policy, when it's part of our way of understanding the world, it risks underestimating the multiple overwhelmings that are often associated with poverty, with mental illness, with abuse, with witnessing violence, not just suffering violence oneself, but seeing violence, because they all have a profound impact on the way in which our whole metabolism, our body, manages its, its systems. It affects our very health, our physical health, let alone our em emotional health. So let me start to unpack this idea of multiple overwhelmings. It's a term actually first used by David Ford, and I thought it was rather useful, so I appropriated it. I used to appropriate rather a few from Ken Dodd. It's a pity he's not still making them, like discumnocorated. Um, I won't attempt to say the proverb because it's Creole and I don't know any Creole, but it's a Haitian proverb and of course surely Haitia is one of the most hard-bitten, hard-hit places in the world. And this particular proverb says that behind the mountain is another mountain. So when one problem is solved, another will always come along. And one behind the mountain is another mountain. Now, if you are living your life with that anticipation, it is quite a different experience of life 
than if you're saying, oh dear, I've had a setback, but I'll be able to pick myself up and dust myself down. So that proverb, behind the mountain is another mountain, is I think one of the subtle underplayings that resilience um, can often bring about. It's one thing to have a single event that knocks you back, but what if the knockbacks come thick and fast and that that is your very experience of life? And what if the things that we witness also take a toll? Certainly the army recognizes that impact when they talk about flashbacks and traumatic stress disorder. So when we face multiple overwhelmings, it is bound, destined to make us wary, anxious and distrustful. Adversity gets under the skin. Yeah? Adversity gets under the skin. That's where we start to get this failure of apparently um, justice systems, apparently fairness, and treating everybody the same. They start to fall away because of this failure to recognize that adversity gets under the skin. Now, I took a great risk putting this up because I only have an inkling about what it means. Um, but what I want to do is to hide behind all the material scientists um, who let the term Jung's modulus trip off their tongues. Because if you were a metallurgist investigating stress points on a plane's wings, you would for sure know at what point elasticity was breached and that the combination of stress and strain would lead to a failure point. So the material sciences are aware that it is not a straightforward putting one foot in front of the other and coping with stresses. A point is reached when that stress has got under the skin. So if we bring it um, to our own metabolisms, being poor makes us vulnerable to multiple overwhelmings. Um, if you enjoy, can't, take, can't pay, take it away. I do. Is enjoy the right word? But can't pay, let's take it away, about debt and about the debt collectors coming. You start to get a clue of the great array of stresses and trauma that a household or an individual will be facing. So when we face these multiple overwhelmings, it creates chronic adrenal fatigue, which relates to cancer, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, cancer, 
ulcers, chronic stomach problems, allergies, and eczema, autoimmune disease, headaches, kidney and liver disease, and reduced immunity. Go back. Sorry. The yield point gets breached, and then one's resilience becomes fractured. And I think we have an illustration of this um, in the Gospels. Um, John 5, um, the very first section, 1 to 15. This is the point in John's Gospel where Jesus challenges a chap who had lingered on the side of the pool at Bethesda for years and years. Now that chap was healed by his encounter with Jesus. He was healed in body. But I detect and suspect that he retained a spirit of resentment. And we read um, as the chapter goes on that he causes trouble for Jesus by telling the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who'd healed him and he'd done so on the Sabbath. When we face chronic, long-term, multiple overwhelmings, we can become, in fact, we are likely to become defensive, self-protective, and even aggressive. We are almost destined to develop a defensive crouch. And another. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. You see, each and every one of us is assessing how our life might work out. That is why um, work with young people is so critical because young people are assessing the odds. What's my life going to be like? What are the odds of my life being anything but being messed about? As Pierre Bordeaux says that we internalize the odds of a good or bad outcome in our lives. That assessment, I think, is a critical point around which I believe mission ought to focus. About how people are assessing how their lives are going to turn out. Um, and that the role of coaching um, becomes critical, critical resource in helping people to negotiate the impact of those multiple overwhelmings. Um, but more about that later. Although I've said, and I will always say, that we have to be very cautious about how we use the term resilience, um, I do also want to say that resilience, sorry about that, really matters. And this quote is probably my most favorite quote of all comes from Viktor Frankl. Um, well, probably many of us here are of the generation of um, 
reading Viktor Frankl. Um, most of his family were lost in concentration camps in Auschwitz. Um, and from his experience of being a young man in a concentration camp, he had to dig very deep into all his resilience. And he says, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, and it's the last of human freedoms. It is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. Now, I think that creates a portal. It opens a door for the ministry of faith. Um, and I'm prepared to say any faith. Um, because what is very clear is that doing business with God is one of the ways in which people start to be able to fathom out what their attitude is to their circumstances. So church involvement and doing business with God um, actually it's now being demonstrated as being a contributor to resilience. Involvement in church, and I go back to St. Matthew's Bootle, Dennis Gatenby, um, Neville Black, that what church was doing for me as a little kid was saying, do you know what, there are choices that can be made and, you know, let's, there's, another, there's another session to say, you know, are some choices better than others? But not to have choice is certainly not a good state. And it was that doing business with God alongside those very special people, um, shaped very much by um, Mission to Bootle in 1958. That dates me. I, yes, that dates me. Doing business with God and the solidarity that was created by Jim Ash, the youth leader, volunteer, um, that characterized my life as a youngster. There was a whole array of older lads who were prepared to give time to stupid girls as we were trying to think and work out the odds about what our life was likely to be. What St. Matthew's Bootle did for me was to help counter passivity, helped counter resignation, and enabled me to change my perspective. And in some instances, that ability to just change one's perspective, which is at the heart of resilience, um, can transform suffering into an opportunity for growth. So let me shift from St. Matthew's Bootle to Sin Finn. More recently, Sin Finn's in Derby, um, on the Ring Road, not far from Rolls-Royce and Qualcast and pretty heavy industries. And I was privileged to see one of the most simple processes of transformation. Um, I think there's a picture of the church, very basic. 
And what would happen would be that as usually it was, it was mums, after they dropped their kids at school, they would go to the hall for a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. And in those days, a fag. Now, somehow, somebody had had the nerve to say that prayer helps. Somebody had had the nerve not to be squeamish about the processes of our faith. And these were people who didn't go to church on the Sunday. They were innocent about faith. And they knew that they needed anything that would help them get through the stresses of the day. And so what would happen as they'd have their cup of tea and their cigarettes? They would say the things that they were wanting to achieve that day. It might be something like, I want to really get off our Gary's back. I try me damnedest, but I don't know, he just gets up me nose. And before you know it, I'm effing and blinding and it's all getting aerated. And then he slams the door. I just want to say, do you know what? I'm only like this, Gary, because I love you. I just want to be able to be decent to him tonight. And somebody else would say, do you know what I want to do today? I want to make sure that I don't swear in front of our Eileen. Because her language, and she's getting in trouble at school, and I know where she's getting it from. She's getting it from me. So I don't want to swear. And somebody else would say, well, do you know, you know I'm up to my eyes in money worries. But look at me. I'm going through 20 a day of these. I just want to get it down to five. Now the next day they'd go in for their cup of tea. Oh, they'd, oh sorry, I missed out the big bit. The big bit was they'd sit there and they'd say, dear God, please help. Please help Lisa so as her Eileen doesn't get a terrible mouth of language. Simple, passionate prayers, which, to be honest, I never get the church doing. They kind of happen in the church hall, but something very sophisticated happens in our churches. These were crying out to God. And then the next morning, they'd come in and they'd say, eh, how many cigs did you have then, girl? I had seven. And there was applause. It's a bit like Weight Watchers. <laughs> Weight Watchers with prayer. That's how resilience starts. And it happened in Sin Fin. There were people who said, you know what? I'm going to battle with my circumstances. And I'm going to join in solidarity with others and with God in order to do that battle with circumstances. That's how the dynamic of resilience starts to flow within our churches. So what was going on in Sin Fin was that people were reframing their circumstances, building solidarity with others to help maintain a hopeful frame of mind. That is not hard. 
I'm going to pause. Has anybody got any stories, any illustrations? You have to stop watching the football here because I want a roaring mic. Um, anybody's got any illustrations of this sort of dynamic happening in your churches? Because I won't have to be cross if you haven't got any illustrations. I'll take this as shyness rather than it's not happening. Any illustrations? A little story. And you know what? The stories that speak of resilience will be stories which always have a very simple link in them. And it's that link of, and then, and then, and then. Have you got any stories of, and then, and then? Microphone? No? Oh, no. We had an unfortunate run of unexpected deaths in the community. Yeah. And it was given to the church leaders to talk about it, to be upset. And I think because everyone was so trying to work out how to grieve about the unexpected, allowing people to express their upset where they were trying to piece things together because of grief. It is so often people need us, us, we need to hear ourselves think. Um, that's the difference between us and academics. Academics think by reading a book and writing. Most ordinary people think by hearing ourselves think. So what you've described is a process where people started to speak and hear themselves think and others come alongside and deepen and stretch what they were thinking. I'm going to suggest that you take a couple of minutes because I am sure that you have got stories like Sing Finn. You just need to dig them up. So off you go. You're looking with each other, a story like Sin Finn, where people, because of their involvement in church and being encouraged to do business with God, they started to do battles with their circumstances and say, do you know what? I can make a choice, whether it's with my language, whether it's with my cigarettes, whether it's all sorts of ways in which people were living lives that were pulling them down. Okay, off you go. You're not supposed to do that in the cathedral. Come on.
couple of minutes. It seems from the commentator in the corner, it was a penalty given away by an elbow. Not a person attached to the elbow, just the elbow. Any, any stories? Yes, nice and loud. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And of course, what also happens is that we then get a story-rich life. We've got things to talk about, and it changes the shape of our face. Instead of having faces down, we have faces up, um, which makes another win-win. Another illustration? Yes, please.
And of course, it makes the idea of church a very simple idea. And it turns church into a verb. Because I would say that that gang in Sin Fin, they were churching. Um, they were doing church. And it happened. Yes, please. It's nice and loud so as at the back they can hear. And, and often they say that laughter is a rumor of angels. Um, and I think it's um, Dante. This makes it sound as if I read lots of hard books, but okay. Dante, um, when he does this great journey from heaven and hell, or is it the other way around, hell into heaven? And when he arrives in heaven, the only sound is the sound of laughter. Because there's no need for hope. There's no need for waiting. Um, that laughter is the voice of the kingdom. Um, because nothing else um, is, is needed. So laughter might actually be that rumor of angels. And certainly in Liverpool, it's got to be that rumor of angels. Because like in Russia, if you've got generations of hardship, you know how to do that laughter of resistance, that laughter of defiance. Um, so maybe the movement of laughter into our churches when we are churching might be just a powerful clue that the Holy Spirit is, is out and about. I'm, I'm changing tack a bit. And you might want to put this in your pew sheets. There we go. A holy man was having a conversation with God one day and said, God, I would like to know what heaven and hell are like. Could be Dante. God led the holy man to two doors. He opened one of the doors and the holy man looked in. In the middle of the room was a large round table. In the middle of the table was a large pot of scouse, I mean stew, which smelled delicious and made the holy man's mouth water. The people sitting around the table were thin and sickly. They appeared to be famished. They were holding spoons with very long handles that were strapped to their arms and each found it impossible to, to, it found it possible to reach into the pot of scouse and take a spoonful. But because the handle was longer than their arms, they could not get the spoons back into their mouths. The holy man shuddered at the sight of their misery and suffering. God said, you have seen hell. I'm sorry if this is a bit um, whiskery as a tale. Then they went into the next room and opened the door. It was exactly the same as the first one. 
there was a large round table with a large pot of stew which made the holy man's mouth water. The people were equipped with the same long-handled spoons, but here the people were well-nourished and plump. Don't you love that word? Plump. Laughing and talking. The holy man said, I don't understand. It's simple, said God. It requires but one skill. You see, they have learned to feed each other, while the greedy think only of themselves. Now, that little story is um, not to condemn the greedy, um, but it is to illustrate how it is possible to reframe the same circumstances. That's at the heart of resilience. Not denying circumstances, but seeing them in a different way. And I don't know whether you can see the little cartoon at the bottom. There's a kind of um, Robinson Crusoe there, left on his little island, um, and he sees a boat. And of course, the poor chap in the boat sees land which is that illustration of the same circumstances, but a completely different framing of them. And that's part of the, if you want, the imagination, um, which is at the root of resilience. So resilience means battling with our circumstances. Um, you know about positive psychology? I always think it's a shot from God's locker positive psychology, begins, I think, in the year 2000, when a chap called Martin Seligman might have been confronted with his inaugural lecture as the president of the American Association of Psychology. And he's kind of Googling away, and he looks through, as we can now do, all the kind of looking at the words that are used by psychologists in all their countless papers that have been produced. And there's like a million references to the word depression. Million upon million. And he thought he'd try a three-letter word called joy. And he discovered that there were three references to joy and he was intrigued because when he was a student, he had been taught, as probably psychology students are today, that the purpose of psychology is to identify what contributes to the flourishing of the species. But of course, the framing that had beset psychology was that its main business was to deal with what went wrong with people rather than focus on how do people flourish. And from that reframing is launched a whole movement, a whole school of psychology called positive psychology. Now I mentioned that positive psychology is a shot from God's locker. And I say that because to the embarrassment of secularists, Every time they do research as to what helps people flourish, they seem to discover that doing business with God plays a very important positive role. Um, so 
we have now a growing body of research that comes under the heading of positive psychologists, positive psychology. And basically, they are saying that our circumstances matter, but not as much as we think. Now, this is a real challenge for those of us who, if you want, earned our living about justice because it's saying something very adult and we have to be very careful both how, we how I say it and how you hear it. Research suggests that we are part of generations and cultures which have come to overestimate the impact of circumstances on our lives and underestimate the scope we have for intentional activity. Now that's partly why I think there is such a move to try and promote resilience. To try and remind us all that we are not prisoners of our circumstances. Now I'm going to live very dangerously when I put this next one up. I'm sorry love, we're northerners and that's all there is to it. Um, actually, it could be my granddad. Do you remember these when they used to tie? That was to stop the rats running up your pants. My dad, my granddad was the night soil man in Oral. It was interesting there. The landlord Harold Glyn Jones, rather than bring in the debt man, he used to give people a job. Um, and all I can say is our rent must have been seriously in arrears because my granddad became the night soil man, and. All his pictures of his tied string round his trousers to stop things getting too close to vitals. Anyway, I'm sorry, love, we're northerners and that's all there is to it. A kind of extreme view of allowing circumstances to be the sole story. Whereas the research suggests that although our capacity for well-being is in fact related to our genes, and what they call our set point, we still have this vast scope for intentional activities. Go back to Sin Finn, and what you have is a story of people saying, do you know what? I love me cigs, but I don't have to be smoking 20 a day. I can bring it down. Laugh at me. Make sure I do it. Pray for me, because it's when I start watching the telly about nine o'clock, I'll be having about six, one after the other. Pray for me then, girls. That's how prayer should be, very specific. Because we've actually fessed up to our vulnerability. And people long to pray. And they were not a group that condemned, by the way. They were a group that laughed. Laughed at each other's vulnerability and weakness. No shame. There is vast scope for intentional activities even when confronted by the direst circumstances. Circumstances matter, but not as much as we think. We are inclined to cede too much power, too much potency to circumstances as we make sense of our lives. kind of a generational thing maybe oh yes please nice and loud 
yes, I'd be dead pleased if people had asked questions. Not that I've got the right answers, but just to get it more. Defensive crouch. Yeah. 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 So people, what about battered people when circumstances repeatedly batter them? Now, I wouldn't want to sort of say, this is what you do. Um, but I do want to say, and I will do, that we have some history, um, some things that we can learn from the past about how it might be possible to be alongside those who have, in the Young's modulus, they've actually, the stresses have been such that they're now broken. Um, and I kind of have to say that as people of faith, we've got to claim that hope, that to be broken and to be wrecked um, might actually be the beginning of of a church and a faith that is, yeah, yeah. It may do, it may do, because it may be that we are having to think about transformation on an industrial scale, but it might not be the people who we think who are needing to transform, which, you know, yes, please, Leslie. Yes, come on. So people, yeah, it's, it's, it is just to be able to have stories like that to feed from. But I just want to take your point. The research, um, whether it's taking account of, if you want, Jung's modulus, that when you're actually broken because behind every mountain there is another mountain, I wouldn't be able to comment. Um, certainly this particular work by, and I can never say their names, Leibominski, you'll have to spell that, won't you? Okay, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Goes to, I didn't mention the names. These people, um, I think it's quite fair to say that that business of 40% um, scope for intentional activity is certainly on the high side. So let's, let's bring it back. Let's just make sense of this. What they're saying is that we all have a set point. And that is, if you want, what our genetic, cultural background has endowed us with. So, for example, we will all have a different set point in relation to cheerfulness. 
not unrelated to resilience. Um, all this means is that the, if you want, the speed with which we return to our set point will be shorter or longer for different people. So it's a kind of subtle way of saying, of not saying this is your genetic endowment. It's saying that we all have aptitudes um, and that we return to our set point. So the saying, the, you know, the way we're experiencing our life, a lot of it's to do with just who we are. Um, and they're suggesting circumstances just 10%. And I think I would want to say that um, that seems too modest. But even if circumstances only take 30% of how we experience life, then we've still got a huge capacity for this intentional activity. That's where our social action work, your job club, that's where it's engaging. It's helping people with their intentional activity. That's why we're doing social action. And you'll notice I've never used the J word, justice. Because I think we use the J word, the justice, too soon. We use it to kind of smother a whole more imaginative repertoire of engagement. Because what we are working with is helping people individuals to embrace some in intentional activity. Um, and that intentional activity is often made more robust both because of solidarity and because I reached out to God and I felt God was at my shoulder. Those sorts of experiences um, are what's going on in people being able to claim that intentional activity. If I can come back to your point about, um, we might have seen it in the past. I'm a huge fan of early Methodism. I think early Methodism was an extraordinary, exceptional achievement for the species, Soce Voce and the Holy Spirit. What we found with early Methodism and then sal the Salvation Army, which grew out of early Methodism, was that that was ordinary people engaging with those who were wretched. Um, people whose lives were wrecked, people whose families were wrecked because of the wreckage that they were spreading around. And the Salvation Army grows out of Methodism because what starts to happen, and no blame here, Methodism starts to become a bit respectable. It starts to be so effective that people start to become clean living. And the Booths say, but what about the gutter ministry? What about the people who are physically in the gutter? How do we get hold of the people in the gutter? You Methodists, you become all political and you're making Birmingham a great place. But what about the people in the gutter? And what we get with both Methodism and early, sal well, early Methodism and early Salvationism is that people in large numbers start to embrace intentional behavior. Um, you'll be able to see what were some of the clues, what were some of the things that they did 
Salvation Army, what did they do? For the, well, you're in the gutter, what do you do three weeks later? Keep them sharing the journey. And yeah. came out of the nice churches, did a group of people, yeah. and got alongside people. Yep. Yeah. Got alongside, um, but he got them singing. Um, one of the extraordinary things about singing um, is that it is renowned for giving us both physical respite as well as emotional respite and pleasure. It's like a win, 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 win. Gareth Malone has blinking stolen our clothes. I bet the organist and music director here could run choirs as good as Gareth Malone. They are. Tell us about the choirs. Tell us about getting Liverpool singing. And it's that dynamic of singing that starts to give people... I just want to give one story about singing, if I want. Um, Church of Scotland, more recently, now, Church of Scotland invests in coaches. Every clergy person who wants to be is trained to be a coach. Not a spiritual director, not unrelated, but it's quite different. Because what the coach does is to try and get people to identify which bit of their circumstance they're wanting to do battle with. And of course, the challenge is always to the imagination. And this group of older women, working with a very um, high-powered American um, coach, she'd retired and come to Scotland for three years because she was adamant that coaching would help people get out of the circumstances, often of addictions, that were claiming people. And the conversation went like this. They're all grannies. In Scotland, in the churches, there is no fear of drugs because it's their sons and daughters and grandchildren who are addicted. Now, if that's not our story in Liverpool, what's going on in our churches? It sh it, if it's not our children who are being addicted, what sort of, what sort of demographic are we? And so the grannies are saying, uh, all this business with having, you know, drug replacements, and what, I've forgotten what it's called. Um, methadone. It's Neanser. It's Neanser. So the coach says, well, what, what is the answer? So the conversation says, oh, they've got to find it in themselves. They've got to somehow get off the couch. That's all they do is just sleep with methadone. They've got no motivation. So the coach says, well, where would they get some motivation? And they hit upon singing. They'd probably watched Gareth Malone the night before. And of course, somebody then says, oh, we could do singing in, in the church. And then somebody else says, oh, they'd make home. They'd make home. So they puzzle again, because it's all about reframing. And they said, ah, we could go to their wee flats and we can sing with them there. And at that point, they start to create 
what is the most appropriate ethnographic response. Because those grannies know that there's no gas or electricity in them flats. Hi, we could take some, we could take some soup. We could have a little picnic with them. And then we'd have a sing song. And they did and they do. And can you imagine the story now that the addicts tell? Who is it who came to us? It was people from that wee church where the roof leaks. Are you doing that in Liverpool Diocese, Bishop? Okay, praise the Lord. But we've got to be doing it because there's nowhere else that we're going to engage and flourish unless we're at that sort of place. So we are helping people and ourselves to resist being victims of troublesome circumstances. That's what the Methodists, the early Methodists and Salvationists did. So it was solidarity between those who were locked in struggle. I gave you that very simple illustration of what that looks like from Sin Fin. That they were helping each other to embrace positive, intentional activities. And, and this is where your blessing comment came in. Daring to risk that there's a generosity in the heart of God. Because that's subversive. If you're having to live a life where behind each mountain there is another mountain, what an act of defiance it is to say that there is such a thing as grace and a generosity of God. That really is the embracing the indignation and the determination. And of course, I use the G word here, gratitude. And those who know about CBT, will know that gratitude is at the heart of that process. Um, perhaps that's why all our worship begins with thanking God, even though behind each mountain there is another mountain. So, embracing a faith commitment has positive impact on our agency because having a sense of life and living, having a purpose. There's the story of those who are helping serve the meals. I've got something to get up for. The practice of gratitude, um, a term I love, that worship is the expression of existential gratitude. That practice of gratitude is an act of defiance, makes for more hopeful attitude to our circumstances. And when our attitudes change, so too do the micro actions in which we engage. Let's just pause for a minute and think about micro actions, because that's what we're talking about. A tiny little action. It might be what people are able to do with their eyes, make, an, make eye contact. Might even be to open the door when the bell buzzer's pressed. Tiny micro actions. Now we'll d discuss later about, you know, how does that, how does a tiny micro action measure up to the great struggles of justice and injustice in this world? But maybe we are the agency 
which cherishes tiny micro-actions, confident that they can be blessed and multiplied. Um, that solidarity with others increases courage, confidence, and stamina, and prayer helps to ease adrenal fatigue. Um, just another illustration. It's from a church, St. George's in, and I struggle to say this now, it's Southall, West London. Um, and they open their church doors from half past eight until 10 every day. What a good idea. And they do that because they have discerned, this is their skill at ethnography, that in their neighborhood, there is a lot of distress between half past eight and 10 o'clock. Why don't we open our churches from half past eight until 10 o'clock each day? And they know that what's going on is that the carers of the youngsters are getting into a tangle. Instead of being able to affirm and cherish, they're actually getting into a row because somebody's saying, oh, ma'am, can I have a fiver? What do you want the money for? Anyway, you, you, I don't want you going out tonight. You've got school tomorrow. Oh, I'm just going out with me mates. I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll only be, I'll only be an hour. But have you got a fiver? What do you want a fiver for? And in the back of her mind, she's not sure whether it's better to give him a fiver or risk that he does some nefarious activity in order to get what he thinks he needs. Absolutely lost in knowing what to do for the best, but can tell that there's a trajectory which is going to say that he will go out of that flat and he'll slam the door and he probably won't come back, but he'll doss down on his mate's floor. And he certainly won't go to school the next day. So instead of actually building up things, that mum feels as if she's just added and made it all worse. They go to St. George's and they light a candle. They just light a candle. And of course, people sit there and eventually they say, Are you worried about your lads? Because I know I, I know I see you. I know you, your lad. I think he's a mate of my lad as well. And from there grows the dynamic of indignation. And I want us to reclaim the notion of indignation. Because what early Methodists did was that they allowed indignation to flourish and then work together to discern how to respond to that sense of this won't do. So indignation is such a powerful foundation which moves us beyond the reframing. It starts to say it won't do that behind each mountain there is another mountain. But if we allow people to be involved in indignation without discernment, without prayer, then we create a very 
dangerous dynamic. So indignation, I believe, is a close cousin to a good embracing of resilience. A powerful emotion that can launch action against oppressive forces and must be fostered alongside resilience. That's another moral imperative. And then just a little word about entitlement. A sense of being entitled also undermines a willingness to battle with circumstances and personal agency. Let me say that again. A sense of entitlement undermines willingness to battle with circumstances and personal agency. It always surprises me that various political commentators, when they say, oh, this is a meritocracy, they give a tick. I think that that's appalling, that we should be praising ourselves that we are a meritocracy, that people have merit. Because don't they know that it's not a fair playing field and that the notion of merit is one of the kind of most fraudulent notions? Because meritocracy so easily drifts into the idea of deservedness. And of course, in relation to the failure to exhibit resilience may well be to withdraw or lessen benefits. I think Liverpool's in the midst of universal credits being rolled out. Um, very much rooted in, you know, there's a resilience, a get up and go, do battle with your circumstances. But all that has been said before about um, it is not a level playing field needs to be heeded. And of course, what is clear um, is that the greatest sense of entitlement is rooted in the rich. And I count myself as rich, by the way. Um, that there is a certain, you know, I presume that certain things should be organized around me um, because, well, I'm worth it. I'm... I want to risk now just mentioning character. Um, Resilience is a subset of character. Character is more than resilience. One hopes that character would also include integrity. Um, one hopes that in character would also include kindness. Um, but in our schools in particular, character is starting to focus down onto resilience. So encouraging people to rise above or ride above the insults and limitations associated with their circumstances and urging them to embrace the scope for meaningful, intentional behavior moves us into the politically charged territory of character, only to be spoken about by consenting adults. The reason? Because we can look at our social policy through our history that the ease with which we drift into presuming the deserving poor and the undeserving poor is kind of screeches at us. And the difference we make is that some have character and display character and others don't. Just to illustrate how politically charged it is, and it's a pressure for our politicians today, um, 
How do we get people to be resilient? How do we get people to be good neighbors? How do we get people to invest in a big society? Just a quote from Richard Reeves, who I think was quite involved with the Blair government. It is treacherous political terrain, but one in which governments are increasingly entangled. Anyone who is interested in creating a successful liberal society is interested in character too. In other words, if you want a free society, you need people who know how to behave with that freedom. Um, whether they admit it or not, good societies need good people. Now there's something to get your teeth into as we share things later. And then just to summarize, this hermeneutic of suspicion I've given you some descriptions of how resilience is important and it is good. It is, we are needful of being resilient. However, I also smell a rat. Because so far, only the poor seem to face sanctions for failing to exhibit character. The well-off, the well-off, we need to develop soft skills, that's character, as much, if not more than those who are poor, because of our failure to be able to rise to the challenge of ever having enough. And to rise to the challenge of behaving other than locusts that wipe out all that else is alongside. And of course, the question that's asked by social movements and social movements is, is just a kind of umbrella term for, um, well, militant was a social movement, and now successor bodies are a social movement, a way of organizing around um, a particular objective. But they would ask the question, why are the poor poor? And because, and certainly my presentation here tonight um, is typical of this, because we in the church do not often ask that question, why are the poor poor? Um, our question tends to be, how do we help the poor? And then there is very little solidarity with those who are seeking to work for more structural change. And of course, at some point, if we are going to talk about resilience and character, we have to find a way of challenging the feral practices of big business. Um, and that comes into the frame if we are to talk about virtuous character with resilience as one of the core features. That's it. Um, I'm sure you want to say things at, and comment and yeah. talk to each other as much to me. Um, can I get a clue about timings and things? And is anybody going to chair this session or? No, 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 I don't. Yeah, thank you. Did you hear that? You come to the mic if you've got any questions. Um, I'm interested in comments as much as questions because I'm a bit of a coward.
Yes, please. I think, it, I think it might be, I think it's, yeah, sorry about that. Are we switched on? And what's the score? You can't use my one. It's too <laughs> infamous. Get there. Yeah, as someone who's worked with um, communities where people have been struggling for many, many years, um, I think uh, taking what you've said to uh, a level how do we get to that process without having a victim-blaming process? And in, a, in order to make a difference, you need to go to people, live among them, love them, learn from what they know. And actually doing that means you have to be around. You can't be moving about all the time. That's right. And that requires persistence and stickability yeah. to stay. And also a lot of courage to actually have a, um, you know, a strong yeah. back yeah. when you're criticised for actually being alongside with yeah. people and yeah. not making a difference because yeah. it takes a long time yeah. for that difference to yeah. be seen. Yeah. So just some comments. Thank you. The time matters. But interestingly, you came close to fingering one of the most unnamed dynamics, which is probably part of our story here. And it's the issue of hypermobility. That we have become, Christians included, the presumption that we should be mobile and we can be mobile. But there is a real cost in that, um, which is very rarely f you know, fathomed or figured into it. Um, one of the, the sweetest pieces of work I'm familiar with is um, work with street women. Um, often to feed a drug ha habit. And Streetlink in Streatham have a van. And the people who are on the van, um, not the driver, but the other two, are all women who themselves um, have been on the streets. Now, you know what a face looks like when... Behind every mountain, there's another mountain. So nobody has to say, oh, look, these have done it. Remember that comment from Pierre Bordeaux? People are working out the odds all the time in relation to my circumstances. So you go into that van for your supplies, um, and you see somebody whose face speaks of that mountain behind the mountain sort of life and immediately you've altered the odds they've done it and one of the things that they do on that van um, is that if somebody says look I want to get off the drugs the system they have in Lambeth is that you have to phone an answer phone every day for seven days now if you live in a chaotic life that's almost impossible. But the van goes round and says, you know, there's a mobile here, do you want a phone? Okay, God, let me, let me do that. I've done, I've done three, I've done three days now. And what has happened is that that little street link pro project has had a new problem because they didn't know what to do. How do you dispose of people's pipes? and all their paraphernalia, their drug paraphernalia. 
Is it, do you put it in the yellow sharps box? Or do you put it in the normal rubbish box? Or what, do you take it to the police? Um, because they've been able, through that solidarity, to get people through the drug system. Um, but to answer your question, it's something about what people's faces look like. My face does not look like somebody who's lived a life of one mountain behind another mountain. Um, and early Methodism, the Salvation Army, people's faces, there's somebody who's lived one mountain behind another. The people who were working in your cafe, well, you know, we can tell by people's face. Sorry, I'm off on one. You've probably got comments, questions. Yes, please, to the microphone, please. Thinking back to the um, graph that had the Young's Modulus thing yeah. at the beginning, and there was that line where it went from elastic to plastic, mm -hmm. I think was the question. How do we, are we aiming to move that line so we get more elasticity, or are we trying to keep people in the, in the area where they've got that ability to bounce yeah. back? Because I'm yeah. thinking, Back in Beyond the Good Samaritan, you used the phrase beyond the theology of needs meeting yes. and beyond that language of just, this is your problem, this is the mm. solution we're going to give mm. you. How do we balance those two together and sort of not just respond to every crisis every but need, yeah. enable yes, people to yes, live in the elasticity? Yes, yes. I think there are some crises where each day is going to be different. Um, uh, going back actually to your story of people, a lot of deaths and people really being broken and heart sad because of it. Um, when we're in that situation, often each day will present a different challenge um, if we're alongside people who are dying. Um, and that, I think, is, is important to respond to. That is the micro-actions um, that really do matter. Um, the reason I'm a little bit opposed to needs meeting is the damage that it does to the gospel um, because it turns us into those who've got a solution. It kind of minimizes the fact that we're all sinners. Um, it kind of people can predict, because they'll see our face, um, that we're the ones who've kind of only found that there was a mountain and a little hillock, not a mountain and a mountain. Um, so there's something, it feels as if our gospel um, just has a, a richness that needs meeting doesn't focus on. But your question about this elasticity, um, I don't think we can use the, the notion of elasticity and plasticity too much in relation to all the circumstances that people are having to struggle with. Um, I think it's, it's a kind of metaphor that can only carry so much weight. Um, sorry, that was um, Rory, no, having a scratch. Rudy having a rude scratch, how? <laughs> I wanna know what it is for scratch. Oh, scratch, there we go. Um, 
So I think, well, this is where we're talking about healing. Um, this is this whole business of resilience moves us into some of the terrain, um, which certainly charismatic churches will know more of than, say, me and my chastened liberal mode that you know has, has spawned me. Um, so I, healing, yes, and let's not be frightened of using that term in relation to the micro actions that people start to embrace. Um, Did I miss you focusing on the, on that graph of 10% circumstances you talked about, as opposed to when we look at the... Oh, improving people's circumstances. Ah, you see, yeah, this is where I was hoping I wouldn't have to say this, because I don't want to say it. Because um, I don't want to be heard to be saying, let's not battle with people and their circumstances. Um, I don't want to be saying that. But I am saying if, we, if our focus is about let's help people get better housing, um, more money in their pockets, yeah, but there's also some other work. And I think I would be bold enough to say that many of our local churches are well-placed to be doing that other work, which is around resilience. There and there. I'm probably going to can you hear that? I'm probably going to say something controversial now. Um, a couple of years ago, we moved church, and it was because I, both my, me and my husband, heard God very clearly saying to us. You need to go to a church you can walk to. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. the people that we help do not have transport. They're our mm -hmm. neighbours, they're mm -hmm. our friends, they're in the local yeah. community. Yeah. And to be going off somewhere else on a Sunday is, is not good because they can't get there unless mm -hmm. we physically take them. So mm -hmm. that, that creates mm -hmm. a culture of dependence. Yeah. And I actually believe that if every single Christian worked in their own community instead of going halfway mm -hmm. across town because they prefer the songs in that church, I think we could have a revolution. Yeah. Yeah. Because as, as the lady there said, you have to be there for the long term. Yeah. Yeah. It's not yeah. something about... One of the things I've learned, like we've helped lots of people with um, problems with addictions, with problems with mental health. And you will find it's two steps forward, one step back, or sometimes one step forward, two steps back. It is not a linear progression. No, you can look at right, all yeah. the graphs you yeah. like, yeah. but that yeah. is not life. No. No. So you need to be prepared to be there yeah. in the long term, yeah. and you yeah. need to be talking to your neighbors and helping them and getting yeah. them to the, somewhere local. Yeah. And we actually moved to the Sally Army in Prescott Road because of that. And it's a brilliant church. Yeah. It welcomes, the doors are open every yeah. day. They have lunches which are not posh, they're whatever's in the fridge, and people come and they share and they talk. And when you ask for stories, I've got a billion, but I couldn't recall any of them because <laughs> there's, there's um, four, you know, as I say, it's two steps forward, one step back. You get good stories, you get bad stories. You know, one day she might be smoking seven fags, next day it's 30. You know, it, that's yeah. the way life yeah. is. Yeah. So we need to be working in our own Community. local place yeah. with our neighbors. Yeah. That's my view. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, interesting, the Methodist class becomes really important. Um, in some ways, the Sin Fin illustration was a Methodist class. 
it was saying, you know what, um, this is how it goes with my soul. Um, I'm in a mess here. Will you pray with me? Gosh, wouldn't it be lovely if that was part of our regular practice as churches? Um, but to stay with this business of local, I'm a great fan of Alistair McIntyre, um, who throughout his professional life as an ethicist um, was a Marxist. And he's a, he's a lad from Dr. Shipman territory, you know, um, Hyde. Um, he'd have had to battle with some circumstances, like Hyde has had to. And he's now a Roman Catholic. And in some ways, it's his book, After Virtue, where he, you can feel him pivoting and thinking there are, there are insights which, as a Marxist, aren't going to work for us. And he, ahead of anybody else, I think, starts to say that in our world where we value profit, profit with an F, um, and power and status, he says, if we're organizing our lives to achieve just those things, we will enter a new dark age. And I just wonder, it sometimes feels that we have entered a new dark age with all the kind of chaos and anxiety which is, is, is in the air. Um, and so he, he concludes by saying, what we need is to give value to the local. You see, the, the imagination can flourish in the local the imagination can do that flip. Remember that rather hairy story about, you know, the stew. Suddenly you can see things differently. You can try things. Once you move out of the local, a dynamic which is not unrelated to the institution starts to shape the imagination. And so your repertoire starts to narrow. So it's only in the local that we can if you want, have got the chance to be really imaginative and take risks. And so he says we've got to, we've got to be local, give value to the local and not the regional, not the national or whatever. And, and then he goes on, he says, we need a new order of Benedictines, which kind of has puzzled particularly secular um, thinkers. Why do they want more Benedictines? And of course, the Benedictines were probably one of the most robust, resilient forms of organization that we've had, really. It sort of couldn't resist Henry VIII, um, but it's still, still there. Now, what have you got with Benedictines? You've got people who are accountable to others. Accountability matters. Why? Because our shit stinks. We're sinners. We need to be accountable. We need others to check um, the nonsense that goes on and these egos which are so greedy of things. Um, that the Benedictines actually had a sense of purpose which was about the other rather than self and that was their whole objective. And of course the Benedictines were committed to the local place. And of course the Benedictines also were aware of our need of God. 
And that's what a secular Marxist starts to say, if I'm really honest, it ain't revolution that we need. We need to commit to the local and that whole method, that whole process, which is at the heart of um, Benedictine Oh, again. Oh, yes. Do you know what I do? Um, now, you can do it in, in London because we use the buses. Um, and I don't think the buses get used in the same way in Liverpool. Um, and because I'm interested in intergenerational fairness, I've had a very... Mountains that might have been in my life, they've been moved away. Everything I could possibly need has been given to me by the state. Um, I am of that generation. Now I do the folded 20 pound note for young mums on the bus. And I only do it in Streatham. Because I want the message to come out in Streatham, that Streatham is a place where people attend to the other and their kind. And that's the message. And of course with social media, I can imagine some old dame gave us a 20 pound note and said ice creams for the kids. I want that. So I think that's possibly what I would do because I'm committed to these micro activities because I think institutions are tired now. Even the bakehouse are still tired. I'm kind of wanting to say to people who are deeply under stress, do you know what? Somebody there loves you, if only for a minute. So it's, it's far more modest than, that's the chastened liberal in me. Yeah. Over there and then. I was just going to say, we got, I think we've got something like the Sim, Sim you're going to hear this, like the Simkin, you know, now our church in, St. Helens, which is the, between here and, and Manchester. And we set up what we call the, the One World Cafe, you know, it's mainly for us asylum seekers and, and ref refugees. And, we did, and so they came along and they, and we, they came along and put on, a, put on a simple lunch and we were trying to help people through the process of go, get, get all the legal process of go, getting right to rem remain in, in Britain. And the had people from the church coming in that doesn't seem to think they're happening, but what is happening is that people are coming, al people are coming along and, and they're, they're get, getting lunch together and, and they're, they're talk talking and, and, and sharing with, with themselves as well as everybody else and, uh, and, and get, getting the encouragement. And some of the, the didn't act all the way it was there for was really to try and help people. We found that people are, are actually coming to faith as well. You know, yeah. we've had baptisms in, in, in the church. You know, and, and but they say, but say, say what you were 
and, and you would say about one mount after another, you know, we found that, that where, where people were being located was the, the other side of town, you know, yeah. because that was yeah. the poorer part of the yeah. town, and we were in the, yeah. the, the wealthier yeah. part of town, yeah. and, and the, the people were coming over, and it was, and the, these folk only get five pound a day to, to, to live on, and it was costing that just to come, yeah. you know, so, yeah. so we started giving bus fares out, you know, everybody yeah. who comes gets their yeah. bus fare re refunded. It was, uh, say, say then, what you say about the, uh, the mountain, following the mountain though, is that the, it found that uh, when the fir first one that did get through the process and did get to leave to, re to remain, you know, they found out what, what happens then is that this five pound a day that they get to live on, that stops, it's taken away and, they, and from, from being five pound a day, you now got nothing. And, and you give them 28, you give them 28 days to get out of the accommodation. Yeah. Where, where yeah. you got no money, where yeah. do you go? And yeah. I remember that uh, our parish nurse uh, uh, coming to make an announcement at the front of church, and yeah. he, she was obviously in te tears and yeah. saying and what had happened with his first lady, yeah. Bernice. And because uh, what uh, what I'm detecting is that you're now getting indignant. <laughs> The indignation yeah, is well. starting to emerge yeah. from being alongside. Yeah. This won't do. I don't. They announced this in, in front of the church and, and just, just, uh, just in tears. And what happened uh, straight after the service is that she was surrounded actually. She, mm. the, she was crowding around her and they were all trying desperately to try and give her money. Money, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. money. Yeah. Yeah. Piles more yeah. money than, than she ever yeah. needed, so, so, so it was set up with what they call the Bernice Fund for the for next right. people. And we've yeah. had them, yeah. we've had this one today actually, yeah. has gone through the same process of, of having leave to remain. People are being helped, they're yeah. finding they, they want to help themselves, and yeah. they're, 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 set, they're set, starting to get the, the organization going yeah. and, and starting making the meals. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you see, what's interesting is that when we come alongside, we often then find what to say after we've said hello. And that that starts to create the raft that can do anything. But in our rather faceless neighborhoods, often we'll say hello, but not know what else to say. And that's a, a lovely illustration of how now people are able to share in a solidarity in that conversation. Thank you. On the street, and it says he's, he's, he's going around the houses. And there's a fine old chap there that says he's, his wife says he's not been out for three years at the house. And secretly, in, in, while he's been sitting in the house, he's been teaching himself Arabic. So he says, Oh, come along, we've got some people yeah, who speak yeah. Arabic. <laughs> Isn't that fabulous? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he's come along every yeah. week. That's <laughs> the precision that the Holy Spirit makes for precision with these little micro actions. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. I've known Anne for a while and um, I was really pleased that Ellen invited her to come. <laughs> 